open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Walk the floor of ESCRS or flip through CRST Europe, and you'll likely be left with a wish list of products coveted from colleagues abroad. At the top of the wish list is bound to be an IOL or several. It's a harsh reality that a range of IOLs regularly implanted by international ophthalmologists remain out of reach for U.S. surgeons. Rather than sit on the sidelines and wait, we can and should take the opportunity to speak with our trusted colleagues in Europe and beyond to hear about their use of these yet-to-be-approved technologies. Then, if and hopefully when they find their way into our clinics, we will have their real-world experiences and insights to call on. With this in mind, I decided to touch base with Dr. Eric Mertens of Antwerp, Belgium, to see which new technologies he is working with and how he is implementing them into clinical practice. Here's Eric. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today on Ophthalmology Off the Grid, we have the pleasure of inviting one of our esteemed European colleagues, Dr. Eric Mertens, to discuss with us some of the technologies, maybe techniques and perspectives from Europe. And really excited to talk to you today, Eric, and uh, really learn from from your experience and maybe get an idea of the technologies that we might have to look forward to in the near future here in the U.S., um, with that being said, uh, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of an introduction about your experience, maybe uh, some of the things you're specializing in, and then we'll just go from there. Okay, thank you, Gary, for having me. Um, it's a real honor to be invited to this podcast, and um, well, having, of course, the technology you are not already uh, using in, in the States, I would love to give me uh, give me a, a little bit of my insights. Sure. So I'm Eric Mertens from uh, from Antwerp, Belgium. I was trained initially as a refractive and a cataract surgeon, um, with some uh, also some experience in corneal transplants, uh, squint surgery, and uh, blepharoplasty and aesthetic eyelid surgery. Uh, that being said, um, my premium um, experience is now in uh, refractive lens exchange with uh, premium IOLs and uh, phakic IOLs and, and laser refractive surgery. Uh, my practice is actually a multidisciplinary practice with uh, colleagues doing glaucoma, um, medical retina, and so on. And my private clinic also has plastic surgeons, dentists, vascular surgeons. So we have a group of doctors working together and um, giving a, um, a premium a premium service to all of our to all our patients wonderful well that that that's incredible so it's interesting you know in the United States we have sort of this premium refractive cataract surgery uh, model that we're able to do cataract surgery on patients and also if they want to choose a presbyopia correcting lens or um, astigmatism correcting lens, we can actually upcharge them and we sort of dance in both of those spaces. Um, is that situation different in, in your market? Um, and is that um, one, of the, one of the reasons you are doing a little bit more on the lens exchange and LASIK side of things? Talk to me a little bit about the market differences that you see in the U.S. versus uh, where you practice. Yes, well, it's very interesting here in Belgium. Uh, when you have a cataract, you will get a basic reimbursement. Whether you, whether you go for a monofocal IOL or a toric IOL or a, um, a premium um, 
premium IOL, like a multifocal or whatever, then the, the reimbursement you get is always the same. Okay. And then we can charge extra for astigmatism correction for premium IOLs for, or for femtosecond laser-assisted um, cataract surgery. We can, we can uh, upcharge to the patients, but, and they have to pay out of their pockets for that. I gotcha. So astigmatism, is that sort of the, um, the thing you're able to charge a refractive uh, premium for? Uh, one, one of the reasons we can charge extras, yes. I gotcha. I gotcha. So if you are doing a lot of um, younger patients in the lens exchange side of things, it would make me assume that you are using lenses that you feel very comfortable with, that give you a high level of patient satisfaction. Otherwise, doing a lens exchange uh, would be a little bit of a harder sell. What lenses are you using for your younger patients who are coming in and maybe wanting a full range of vision and LASIK is, is not really a great option for them? Okay. Well, it's a very interesting uh, topic to talk about because we have a lot of lenses. And since, uh, well, 2011, I started using, using the trifocal, the fine vision from the company, uh, the, actually a Belgian company, Physio, um, which was amazing to see that intermediate vision added a lot to the satisfaction of the patient. So that became my lens of choice for many years. Then um, the trifocal, um, the cylindrical trifocal came along, the, the physiol toric and the acrolisa toric. And surprisingly enough, uh, I liked the physiol for spheric corrections better than the trifocal acrolisa. But for toric corrections, because the acrolisa toric is a bitoric design, so the stigmatism is corrected in, in both optics uh, sides of the lens. Right. Uh, it, it gives me a better uh, predictive outcome in cylinder, cylindrical correction than the physiol toric. That is what uh, I found in my patients. So for the, the spheric corrections, I, I, I use the physiol uh, fine vision. And for toric corrections on top of the trifocality, I use the acrolisa toric. Well, and uh, you're making me really jealous here, Eric, because I have access to neither of these lenses. So um, that, that's a that's great perspective for us to think about what's coming down the pike. Um, yeah, but you, but you recently got uh, approval for the Symphony lens. That is, yes. And, and to be honest, I have just been blown away with the happiness of my patients. You know, I, I was started, you know, I started my training in 2004 and, and fin finished my residency in 2008. And during that time, we had the first Restore Lens approved in the United States. And, you know, there, it was met with a lot of fanfare by ophthalmologists. Um, however, I didn't get that same sense of um, fanfare from my patients in most cases. Now, to be fair, there were a number of patients I had who were very happy. But I just didn't get the sense that they were real that that it was really a a huge step forward. Now, in my in in my experience going from the restore over to some of the lower ad multifocals, that was actually uh, it was actually a step in the right direction. And just like you mentioned, the intermediate vision I think was underappreciated uh, by industry and maybe even by doctors. Intermediate vision is so useful to patients, and so when we moved into the lower ad multifocals, we started seeing a little bit more um, sizzle, a little bit more appreciation from our patients, really excited about that, 
And then now moving into the symphony, I'm, I'm personally seeing just a tremendous level of satisfaction in my patients. And I feel like we, we, the, te- the technology is migrating in the right direction where we really are seeing some dramatic improvements. And I'd love to get your perspective um, from someone who's maybe had the symphony for a lot longer than I have. Have you been able to use it? You know, where, do you, where do you see it in your practice? I, I know maybe you have your other lenses that are maybe your go-to lenses, but what are your perspectives on the symphony? Yeah. Well, um, besides the symphony, I also have access to what is called the WIOL. The WIOL is a large optic um, uh, correcting lens without any haptics. It's about 8.8 to 8.9 millimeters in diameter. And it has a, a normal surface, front surface, but a hyperbolic posterior surface, which when the, the pupil comes down uh, with accommodation, you get a higher degree of correction in the center of that hyperbolic posterior surface lens. Interesting. Uh, I've, I've been well, very impressed with the results for distance vision intermediate and near. And also, um, we're doing now in a multi-center European study, and the contrast sensitivity uh, is really extremely good. The problems we have with the lens is actually uh, you may have to make sure that you center that lens nicely into the back, and it's not always so easy. Uh, secondly, um, our A constant is not there yet. We have some sometimes hyperopic surprises. Those people can see for distance and intermediate, but they complain that near vision is not good enough. So we have to correct a little bit of hyperopia. So we're working on that. Well, having said that and going back to the symphony, I've used the symphony in uh, a lot of patients and I was also extremely impressed with distance vision intermediates, but I was less satisfied with the near vision. Uh, I know that uh, in the States, you, you're working with a, a, a mini monovision, uh, as, as you uh, should should or will call it. But uh, what I'm doing recently is I'm implanting the symphony in the dominant eye. So they have an excellent distance vision and intermediate vision with not that many issues about glare and halos at night. But I implant in the non-dominant eye the, the trifocal uh, fine vision lens to have that very good near. And the combination of both, they work beautifully. So they have a very good distance intermediate with the symphony and they have the very nice small print reading capability with the uh, fine vision in a non-dominant eye. Well, and that is a that is a really hot topic right now. Talking about mixing and matching um, a multi a true multifocal with a symphony to see yes. if you can do that. And that's that's something I've really been considering. I know I have some friends uh, around the country who are doing um, the um, one of the lower ad multifocals from Technus. Um, sort of their intermediate version, and um, and the symphony and mixing and matching and, and really having a lot of success. So it sounds like that that plan has worked really nicely for you. Um, any issues with patients not adapting to the changes because you're you're sort of uh, putting different technology in either eye? I mean, I, patients you know will always have some sort of issues no matter no matter what you do. There's going to be a small segment, but. It sounds like you found this to be a pretty uh, well-accepted um, way to correct people's entire range of vision. 
Yeah. Well, yes. So we, we look very closely in which eye is dominant. And uh, you also know that sometimes the, the, the dominant eye is not that easy to, to establish. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm, I'm more hesitant to implant a mix and match. And I would rather go for the same technology in both eyes. But when we can clearly detect the dominancy in one eye, then we will go for the symphony in the dominant eye and the, the fine vision in the non-dominant eye. Because I don't do not what what, what I found in, in Belgium particularly, that um, monovision is not that well accepted in our patients. Because of our um, optometrists, they like to correct um, our patients with contact lenses for distance vision and give them uh, reading glasses when they're 45 years or older. Did in contrast to the Netherlands, where the optometrists are more into a monovision, also in, in contact lens uh, correction. So those patients are already accustomed to that monovision, which Belgian patients do not tend to have that much experience with. Isn't that interesting? Just regionally, there, yeah. there, you know, there can be differences like that. You know, and it's, yeah. I think you're exactly right. If someone comes to me and they have demonstrated um, tremendous success with monovision, I'm fairly hesitant to change them to a different technology because it's like rewiring the circuit, you know, rewiring the brain to adapt to a new change. So if someone is happy with monovision, I'm usually in my cataract practice, I'm very comfortable, um, you know, simulating that for them. Do you find that to be true as well? Yes, I, I fully agree with you. It's, uh, well, it, it's not one size fits all. You have to talk to the patient you have to listen what they want, what they are accustomed to, and then you can customize your treatment to the needs of, the, of that particular patient. Right. So talk to me a little bit more about the fine vision. This sounds like a lens that you are um, very familiar with. You have a lot of experience. You've had a lot of success, which, which speech, speaks volumes. Where is that in terms of its potential for coming to the States? Is that a topic you can talk about or have any inside information about that you could share? Well, uh, I, I actually, I don't know um, the plans of uh, the visual company of doing FDA-related studies to bring that technology into the States. Uh, I, I don't have any clue whether they have plans in that direction. Well, it sounds like it would be a product that would be well-received over here. So maybe, uh, maybe just talking about it will get, we'll get some momentum in that direction. Um, let's, yes. let's switch gears just a little bit and uh, talk about refractive surgery because I know that's another area of expertise for you. It's, it's an area of passion for you. Um, we, again, in the United States, it seems like recently we've been getting some approvals, um, and it's been a very exciting time in the States where it seems like every couple of weeks a new technology is being approved. Mm -hmm, um, exactly. we, we've gotten a couple of inlays, so we have the raindrop approved now, we have the camera approved, and also Smile has been approved. Um, do you have any experience with any of those three technologies? And if so, I'd love to kind of hear what your thoughts are on those. Well, I have uh, with all three of them. Yeah. With uh, let's start with the camera inlay. This is the same thing as what I talked about with with, with monovision. Uh, I found it hard to satisfy my patients with a reading correcting device in only one eye. Um, they were they could read. They were able to read. Their, their distance vision was was good and okay. As the same the same thing is with a raindrop, but they were they said I'm happy. But, and I don't like the but in this sentence. Right. Uh, because then you know they have concerns or they're not fully satisfied. And um, as a refractive surgeon, yeah, 
we, we don't like to hear the hesitation in the voice of the patient uh, one month after surgery. So uh, actually, um, I stopped doing the inlays because um, of that of that concern. And secondly, um, I found in a couple of cases, even later on, nine, ten months after surgery, late reactions in the cornea, like getting some uh, haze formation around the implants. Uh, and for that reason, I had to explant uh, a couple of them. Okay. Uh, although you people say it's reversible, uh, you still end up with the little haze left in that cornea, even when you treat it with corticosteroids for a longer period of time. So in those cases, I had to take those uh, inlays out. Um, I was not really satisfied with the, the final status of the cornea. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's, that's my main concern. I see. And that's, that's a concern I think that we all have. You know, as ophthalmologists, we, we want to make sure that we're doing something that has a really high uh, benefit profile, but we know that anything we do, there are some risks. So it's really just trying to balance that to find out what yes. is going to be you know, most beneficial for our patients without putting them at too much risk. And I think, yes. I think from, from a lot of different you know, perspectives, you know, surgeons have different experiences. I've heard from surgeons on the other side that say, you know, I've really not had too much haze. I've not had that as much of an issue. And we, we're putting them maybe a little bit deeper and our techniques have changed a little bit. So that maybe that's evolving a little bit. I think there, there may still be, um, you know, improvements. And I think this, this space is very interesting. Um, yeah. But I, I do share your concerns. I think we all have to think about that and, and really kind of try to make our own mind up about what the goals are for the patients, and you know, making sure that we're not putting them at too much risk. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, th- this this podcast is really just about honest conversations. Yes. So it's important that we share those perspectives. So thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And 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 camera and raindrop they work beautifully, but in very well selected cases. So the surgeon has to look into that, has to talk to the patient, and uh, go in depth when what what can happen and what they can expect. And in selected cases, they work. Very well. Nice. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about smile. Um, again, you know that that technique and, and the laser was approved for correction of myopia in the United States very recently. Um, tell me about what your experience has been like with smile. Maybe how do you um, how do you select patients for smile versus LASIK, and kind of where you see it fitting in your market? Yeah, I have not done that many cases, but I can tell you my my small uh, experience. Uh, with smile, with uh, smiles, of course, very appealing to patients. A, an all laser, uh, no blade surgery, um, with a, only a small incision in the cornea. Right. And although it looks very appealing, it, well, I, I had to go through a through a although steep learning curve. It was a learning curve in the beginning. You're not used to follow the curvature of the cornea with your instruments. Um, you have to be very careful that you take out the whole disc that the femtosecond just prepared for you in right. the cornea. <laughs> you don't want to leave and any behind, do exactly, you? Exactly, exactly. That's that's when uh, when you end up in that situation, and you cannot always uh, recognize it. You o- you only see it postoperatively when you're doing a coronal topography or a, a Scheinfluke uh, imaging device, and then 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 you then you notice it. And it's very difficult to repair that. The second issue I find is that when you need to do a 
a touch-up. Um, first, you say to the patient, okay, we do a very elegant procedure, very small incision, and now you need to do a touch-up with a PRK. Right. A lot of pain for a couple of days, and it will take uh, 10 days before your vision returns to 2025 or 2020. So that, that, that it's difficult to me to, to talk to the patient and say this is the a high. It is a high end surgery. When everything goes well, it's beautiful. Uh, but it's in its early stages of development. As we've seen, uh, I started doing PRK in 1991. Uh, we saw a lot of haze with the broad beam lasers. The predictability was not good. We had to give a lot of steroids for a longer period of time. Um, and that's that's the same thing with smile. It, when when we can develop this technique and get it much finer technology uh, with with less concerns, it, then it will work beautifully. For the moment, I'm I'm very selective in my patients, and I'm not using it as a high-volume procedure for the moment in my practice. Well, I think, I think you said that very elegantly. Um, we see the promise of this technology. We see the promise of a small incision, uh, laser-only procedure, um, just like we see the promise of the corneal inlays, like the camera and the raindrop. And so, mm-hmm. you know, as, and it may be that these technologies might evolve simultaneously and maybe synergistically, where down the road we're seeing you know, even more reasons to maybe do smile with a raindrop or smile with a, an AccuFocus device. So it is really interesting. And, and the reality is LASIK is so good. It's really hard to compete with it, with a procedure that is just so well established and so, exactly. re- so refined. Exactly. I fully agree. LASIK, of course, has a 20-year a uh, track record. And LASIK is so good. And, and Smile is, of course, very appealing. And it will improve for sure. And as you said, um, Smile in combination with inlays, that would be great. So there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, but we, we, ain't, we, we ain't seen nothing yet for the moment. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Eric, I really appreciate you just coming on and uh, talking about your experiences. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of things um, in Europe that we may have to look forward to. Um, the Fine Vision IOL sounds you know, very appealing along with the Acrily Satoric. Um, and we all are just cheering on the people who are out trying to develop new technologies and, and helping give us new tools to treat our patients with. So um, any parting thoughts before we wrap this up? Well, yeah, I, I want to say a few, few words about the, the ICL and the evolution which is going on with the ICL. Sure, absolutely. It's, um, well, you know, they had a rebranding and they call it now Evo from Evolution and Evo Plus for the larger uh, the optic diameter ICL, which since I've been using the, the, the Aquaport technology now since uh, four years now, for almost five, I think, um, I've seen a tremendous growth of my amount of ICL patients in respect to laser vision correction, and that in many ways. First of all, with the Aquaport, you do not need an iridotomy or iridectomy anymore, which was, let's be honest, the most bothersome part <laughs> of the surgery yes. for, for, the, for the surgeon and for the patient. Yes. Uh, and although we try to do a very good job, once in a while you ended up with a high eye pressure and you had to come to the clinic in the, middle, in the clinic in the middle of the night and deal with that. So you do not want to see this in, in young patients. So and I have it in, in um, 
more than 1,500 uh, aquaport cases. I've, had, I've never seen a pressure rise. Wow. Yeah, that is a really amazing technology. Secondly, um, because of the flow of aqueous, which is forced between the ICL and the crystalline lens before entering in the anterior chamber, I also have, in the, the four-year follow-up period, I haven't seen a case of uh, opacities, anterior opacities in the lens, and haven't seen any cataract cases. That's incredible. Which is in, yeah, that's incredible. So that was a, a criticism for the ICL for many years, and I think they, they solved that problem now for good. The only issue which actually, in my opinion, the only issue which is still remaining is a sizing issue. Huh? We sometimes get, although we do UBM, although we do white-to-white uh, -white and caliper measurements, and we try to, to, uh, to choose the right length of the ICL, sometimes we end up with a low volt or with a high volt, and this is the only remaining issue with the ICL. Because in the end, by not touching the cornea, so by not touching the cornea or by um, uh, not altering the curvature of the cornea, you will not get dry eye. Right. And also, later on in life, because uh, let's be honest, ICL surgery is only uh, the step before you do a refractive lens exchange or a cataract surgery later on in life. Those patients who are uh, willing to see without glasses will be also asking to the, the eye surgeons in the future to have a premium eye well because they do not want to wear uh, reading glasses. And when you have done laser refractive surgery, it's much more difficult, as we know, to pick the right power of the eye well. And also because of the, the different asphericity of the cornea, um, implanting a multifocal eye well at present uh, days, um, the, the, the quality of vision is even less than in a virgin cornea. And you don't have those issues with the ICL. And I know that Star Surgical is really um, working with the FDA and they, uh, they will make the commitment to bring that technology to the States. Of course, it will take some time, but that I know for sure, they want to bring this technology to the States as well. Well, Eric, the Aquaport, you know, really sounds like it is solving uh, multiple problems all at exactly. once, and yes. uh, that that's something that we would love to see here in the U.S. Um, what patients are you? Um, walk me through a little bit. What patients are you trying to steer towards an ICL versus um, what patients would you say? No, I think you're going to do better with LASIK. What is your conversation? What's your criteria look like? Yes. Well, actually, um, I, I'm going to make a bold statement. Uh, for me, every patient is a good candidate for the ICL unless there are contraindications. Right. So what many surgeons still do, and what I did also four or five years ago, is saying, telling my patients, you're not a good lazy candidate or a smile candidate, so we have another option for you. But then you scare them away because then they think, Mm, this other can be thing. a dangerous procedure. Yeah, this other thing must not be so good. <laughs> yes. So now I tell them, okay, we have multiple options. We have the laser vision correction site, and we can do laser vision correction on the surface, under a flap, or directly in the cornea, or we can implant an extra lens, uh, and we leave your own crystalline lens in the eye. These are the four options we have. We're going to do an examination, and after examination, I will tell you which one I think is the best for you. Whether we find 
a little bit of, of uh, well, we, we do a lot of work on dry ice. And uh, the one thing you do not want is a 2020 uncorrected patient one month post-op and complaining about dry ice. That's uh, the nightmare, I think, of the refractive surgeon. So we are very keen on that. And also, um, now, with that Aquaport technology, uh, we implant even 50 years old with the ICL, um, which I did not do before I had the Aquaport technology available. That's very interesting. I like the way that you position uh, the ICL at the very beginning because then it doesn't sound like it's an afterthought or some riskier um, alternative to LASIK if you can't qualify. So I think that's really um, that's a really nice pearl that presenting it from the very beginning as a very good option um, equal to the other options depending on the patient's own exam. Uh, that probably sets that up in their mind um, on a different yes. level. As, as a different uh, as a different procedure, but an equal procedure, right. not right. an exception. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And um, that's just that's that's a that's a great pearl. I think we can apply that to maybe even other things in our in our positioning of technology. So um, that's that's just great. Well, uh, Eric, thanks again for uh, sharing your time, your perspectives. Um, I always enjoy listening to um, you speak and reading your articles, and I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you, Gary, for having me. Absolutely. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Has your wish list grown? Mine has. But instead of feeling like that kid on Christmas who didn't get this year's IT toy, let's be proactive. Let's listen to our European colleagues, research these innovations, consider how they might fit into our practices, and just maybe have a little faith that they'll make their way across the Atlantic. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. If you've got a question or idea, I'm all ears. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz. Thanks for tuning in. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.